If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The relationship between politics and history has long been a fraught one, particularly in recent years, when concerns that political agendas might be shaping our view of the past have been rife. One organisation that sets out to identify and push back against this is History Reclaimed, an independent group of scholars whose ranks include the historian Zirir Masani. Matt Elton caught up with Zirir to get his views on the politicisation of history, his involvement in History Reclaimed and why he thinks such an initiative is necessary. Zirir, I wondered if first of all you'd be happy to introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Zaria Masani. I have a modern history defil from Oxford, but then worked for 20 years as a BBC current affairs producer. But I also managed to write two books in the course of that. And my first book was a biography of Indira Gandhi. And my last book was 2013, a biography of Macaulay. It's sort of gone from one biography to another. And I'm currently researching the idea of doing a new biography of Robert Clive, who arguably was the founder of the British Empire in India. Thank you so much. And before we go any further, I thought it might be worth just clarifying the capacity in which you're involved in history reclaimed, and whether you're speaking today on their behalf or in your own right, I suppose? Well, I am I was one of the founder members of History Reclaimed and uh, one of their executive committee. I'm no longer on the executive committee. They have used articles from me and I've read articles with interest that they've used and introduced um, historian friends of mine to them. So I'm still uh, quite involved, though not in a steering capacity. So first of all, I suppose, for people who might not know, could you run us through the basics of History Reclaimed, what it is, when it started and what it sets out to do, I suppose? Well, it started with a name we were playing around with. My preference was for reclaiming history, which indicated a continuing process. But I think the majority view was to go for the past tense, history reclaimed. And uh, I thought this sounded a bit like a sort of excavation project. So for me, it's much more a live project about the uh, culture wars that are going on and how history 
fits within that. And I think what's very important in that is the way that history is used for current political purposes, which have very little to do with history. So it's reclaiming history from that current abuse, if you like. So that leads nicely to my next question, which is that do you see history reclaimed as being part of a broader movement? And if so, what do you see its role in that movement as being? I think it was um, um, very much um, the genesis of something which has been growing since, because I think it was a reaction to the way that academia was being decolonized and recolonized by a rather, I suppose the simple word is woke approach to history, which basically meant both the uh, academic professionals were made to conform to this rather stereotypical view of history seen in terms of uh, European colonial domination and slavery and those sorts of Western exploitative practices, which, again, as I say, were being used to really for current political purposes against the West. I thought before we go any further, there might be listeners who are unfamiliar with some of the things we've talked about already, such as culture wars. What do we mean when we talk about a culture war in this context, I suppose? Or what's your take on it? Well, there there have been culture wars ever since I can remember. And there were, you know, when I was a student, the culture wars were between um, socialists. I was a socialist as a student. And the more conventional, traditional view of uh, which celebrating um, British nationhood and empire. And we were very much rebelling against that and, um, you know, quite influenced by Marxism and other revolutionaries ideas. That was a culture war. Since then, it has very much, uh, I would say, transmogrified, because I think the socialist element has really gone. But what has remained is a sort of very classist element, if you like, which is to see the achievements of the West as the achievements of a particular class rather than broader based. And on the basis of that, rejecting much of it, empire included, but also Western soft power, the way that uh, Western ideas of modernity have been influencing the third world and so forth. So just to pick up on something you mentioned there, there's a class-based element to this that you see as disregarding some of the achievements of of the West and of empire. What specifically in terms of class do you see as being commonly thought of as worth studying or worth regarding in that sense? Well, I think the stereotype that is used uh, in the culture wars is to see uh, the British Empire and the British state as being the monopoly of a small elite of toffs, if you like, who have sort of creamed off all the benefits for themselves, oppressed poor natives from countries like India, which I come from, and, you know, are now a rather uh, decayed and corrupt class represented by the current rather chaotic Tory government. So there is this view that Britain has been dominated by this very decadent group of people. So if I'm right, uh, you see it as about unattaching the history of the British Empire from present day political views and concerns. Is that right? 
Oh, absolutely, yes. Because I think it needs to be seen in its own terms, not by 21st century moral or political standards. And I think um, that's what History Reclaimed is about, which is about getting back to the roots of history without these ideological constraints that are being imposed on it. So uh, in terms of the specific factors that make history reclaim necessary now, it's about taking politics away from history. Are there specific dimensions of history or historical subjects that history reclaimed and its members coalesce around? Well, uh, clearly empire and uh, colonialism, the um, role of Western exploration, the discovery of uh, other continents and the way that Western explorers uh, rediscovered a lot of the heritage of these uh, areas. For instance, uh, Indian heritage was rediscovered for us by um, Western Orientalists who, you know, Edward Said later stuck the knife into. But who did an enormous amount to rediscover our own history for us. So I think these are the sorts of areas that are contested and which History Reclaimed is trying to excavate, if you like. We should get into some of that history then. Do you think that the British Empire and colonialism as a force more widely is portrayed inaccurately? And why do you think that is? Um, I think it is for the ideological reasons that the British Empire did more than any other empire to modernise the world as we know it and create the institutions that exist. It's no accident that, you know, the vast majority of Commonwealth countries are parliamentary democracies in some form, not perfect, but, you know, aspiring to that. And um, so I think the British Empire is seen as being the kind of uh, Athens to America's Rome in that sense, and the inspiration for Western soft power as it exists today, which is uh, why it is, uh, you know, contested territory, even, you know, almost a century after it's gone. So, so, you, so you do think that the British Empire is widely portrayed today in an accurate way? Yes, absolutely. It's portrayed through current political uh, lenses and uh, attempts to discredit current Western powers on the basis of their previous imperial record. So just to sort of explore some of your own views of the British Empire then, is your take that there were very few bad aspects of the British Empire or that the negative aspects are being overplayed? Well, I think it's important to recognise that all empires across several millennia have had their pros and cons and achieved some things and also committed atrocities of some kind. The British Empire, I would argue, is is the least culpable in terms of having committed atrocities. It is, I would argue, the most benevolent of all the empires we've had so far. And as I say, I'm going back millennia and comparing empires across millennia. So I think the uh, all empires, in a sense, have been a default mode of governance for expansionist states, which have in, uh, acquired power over other neighbours and other colonial groups. But the British Empire, more than any other, has used that power 
in the interests of the people it was governing. So it, there was always a concern for the Indian masses, for Indian subjects, for the underdogs in Indian society uh, who were being oppressed by upper castes, etc. So that ran quite deep right through the British Empire. In your view, what would you say that were the uh, traits or the attributes that led the British Empire to being the most benevolent of these empires? Well, uh, the British Empire uh, grew out of the East India Company, which started as as a trading company, but actually developed very much into a form of governance as well in order to protect its trade. And it always had benevolent aspects to its rule. It believed in the rule of law, in rights of property, protection of trade, encouragement of trade, the sort of attributes one might expect from a healthy economy today. So that was very much the goal of the East India Company, and it achieved some of it and in other respects fell short. There was corruption. There was also a great deal of legitimate rulemaking and lawmaking, which actually led India's own merchant class to vote with their feet and move to the company cities, the great port cities of Bombay, Calcutta, Madras, where, you know, business was protected and encouraged. So out of that grew the um, British Raj, which um, took over from the company after the mutiny, which was pretty much uh, suppressed by the company and and, um, British troops as well. And the British state then took over with very much the aim of clemency. You know, the Viceroy was called Clemency Canning. It was Lord Canning who uh, did his best to reconcile the previously warring elements of the mutiny and offer amnesty to people who laid down their arms and peacefully surrendered to um, the British Raj. So that began with the goal, and Queen Victoria was proclaimed Empress of India, and she issued a proclamation very much instructing her governors in India not to persecute people who'd been involved in the mutiny, to be generous, to be kind, uh, not to introduce any forms of racial discrimination, equal treatment for all her subjects. So that was a goal pretty early on in the empire. I mean, there are historians who characterise East India Company as being ruthless and heartless. What would you say in response to those those claims? Well, <laughs> I think they're very illiterate claims because, I mean, if you if one looks at the East India Company from the moment that it actually took political power, which is with Clive after the Battle of Plassey, one of the first things it did within a few years of taking power was to establish the Asiatic Society, which was formed with the goal of rediscovering India's classical heritage, translating works from Sanskrit and Arabic, making learning available to as many people as possible. It was presided over by Warren Hastings, who was the first governor general, and Sir William Jones, who was the chairman of the Asiatic Society, was an eminent Sanskritist and Orientalist who did an enormous amount to rediscover India's own lost heritage. So I don't think, uh, I think you find very few companies in the history of the world which took on those sorts of cultural tasks, which you didn't need to at all. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I mean, I suppose one example that people might point to in terms of the ruthlessness is the 1770 Bengal famine. What's your take on, on that and the extent to which the, the Cinder Company was culpable for, for the course of, of that? Well, it certainly wasn't the first Bengal famine. Famines have been pretty cyclical in Bengal and in southern India for centuries before the East India Company took over. I think what you had in 1770 was a coincidence of uh, monsoon failure, poor harvest coinciding with a period of major political transition in which the company took over from the uh, native Mughal state which had been decadent and crumbling for uh, at least a century before. So there was very little effective governance in Bengal. There was no famine relief. There had been no famine relief projects under the Mughal regime, which the company could take over. The company had not had time to set up its own famine uh, relief organizations. So it was a period in which there was quite a lot of havoc and and a lot of... uh, Uh, deaths as a result. But I don't think it can be blamed simply on the East India Company. Do you think it can be blamed at all on the East India Company? It can be blamed, I think, on the sort of lack of efficient civil society in a period in which the company had just taken over from the previous Mughal rulers, and there was very little effective governance in the local areas. I mean, the company had took um, a good two or three decades to develop its own civil service and send district officers out into their uh, into the local, what we call them, Mufasil, the out-of-city areas. So the company hadn't yet developed this network. It wasn't deliberate in any sense, but there was neglect. 
You mentioned that Bengal is a region that has suffered a series of famines, and there's another one that we should probably talk about, which is the 1943 famine. Could you talk us through the the context behind the events of that year? Yes, I think the 43 famine was very much the exception that proves the rule. The rule being that under the British Raj from 1900 onwards, there was no significant famine because the famine codes that had been established in the 1880s were very effective in redistributing supplies from one part of the country to the other. The railways played a big role in that too. So what happened in 1943 was firstly a poor monsoon in the previous year, but no major decline in food supplies. But secondly, the fact that there was a Japanese invasion going on, which meant the Japanese had occupied Burma, which was an area which used to supply Bengal with with food grains and with rice. Uh, The Japanese were also in control of the Bay of Bengal with their submarines. So shipping was at great risk from the Japanese. And the Japanese were actually invading India via the um, sort of border areas with Burma. Calcutta was not very far away and was subject to air raids. So there was a huge dislocation of distribution uh, networks in Bengal. Plus, of course, the uh, priority was given to the armed forces. So food grains went to them first. And there was a huge amount of speculation by the food traders who were mainly Hindu merchants who did not get get on very well with what was then an elected provincial government because Bengal, like other Indian provinces, had elected provincial government from 1937 onwards. And it was a Muslim-dominated provincial government because Bengal was then a Muslim-majority province. And the traders were mainly Hindu and pro-Congress. So there was this kind of political communal divide, which I think also hampered the supply system. One of the flashpoints around this specific event is the involvement of Britain and Winston Churchill specifically. For people who might not know, can you talk us through the sort of the the, the, the arguments on both sides about this uh, dimension of the story? Well, it's a complete sort of demonization of Churchill on the basis of no evidence. I have studied the War Cabinet minutes and the Government of India minutes for that period, 1943 to 44. What is very clear, firstly, is that the War Cabinet from August 1943 took the famine very seriously and Churchill appointed Viscount Wavell as Viceroy with the specific brief, and this is there in the War Cabinet minutes, to address the famine as his first priority. So it was high priority. In terms of actual supplies, Churchill is blamed for having not diverted some Australian shipping to Calcutta in preference to having it in Europe. In fact, the War Cabinet arranged for over a million tonnes of Australian, Iraqi and Canadian food grains to be shipped to Bengal between 1943 and 44. And it was that supply of a million tonnes of food grains that actually ended the famine and it broke the speculation. 
The reason why Churchill did not divert some Australian shipping was that firstly, if you look at the map of Australia and Calcutta, it makes very little sense for Australian ships to venture into the Bay of Bengal when it was being patrolled by Japanese submarines in order to deliver to Calcutta unless it was absolutely necessary. So, yes, I mean, Churchill did divert some shipments, but he also arranged for several others. I mean, and, and there are people who argue that Churchill's approach to this particular issue is symptomatic of his wider views of race and class and ethnicity and a nationhood and all kinds of bigger things. What's your what's your take on that? Well, I think one has to accept that Churchill, like most people of Victorian England or Victorian India, for that matter, were racist. Uh, So that sort of colour prejudice was a pretty universal phenomenon. And yes, I think Churchill regarded the uh, white European, especially British race, as superior to everyone else. He would have felt the same about the French and the Germans and regarded the British as superior to them. As far as India was, went. I think, firstly, he definitely had a preference for the for Muslim society because uh, Islam was closer to Christianity and to the sort of monotheistic values of Christianity. He was appalled by the caste system in India and the way that uh, Hindu upper caste totally, you know, refused to even be in the shadow of someone of a lower caste, let alone have a, f- a drink or, or, or food with them. So all of these things... Uh, certainly made uh, Churchill uh, far from sympathetic to Hinduism. But I think the the last straw for him was when Gandhi launched the Quit India movement in 1942 at the height of the World War when Britain was fighting with his back to the wall. And uh, Gandhi launched the Quit India movement, said the British should leave right away, the Japanese should be allowed to enter with only passive resistance from India's population. So all this to Churchill came across as very much a stab in the back. And uh, he also had always regarded the Congress as an organisation dominated by the Hindu upper caste. And I think he was basically right about that. It was very much an upper caste organisation led by Gandhi, who was a Brahmin, and by Nehru, who came from the most uh, refined Brahmin group of all from Kashmir. So there's several things that are interesting there. One is that it seems to me that you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Churchill did have complex, sometimes problematic views, but they were shaped by the world around him. And is it, if that's right, is it fair to say that our take on Churchill's actions depends somewhat on what we think of his views? Uh, yes, because we are, again, applying 21st century's views on race, on ethnicity, on issues of that sort, whereas Churchill, I think, someone who might have been similar was Cecil Rhodes, for instance. I mean, these were people who grew up in Victorian society and definitely regarded white Europeans as being the most advanced civilization in the world. And having a lot of positive values to um, with that sort of looking after the the more vulnerable sections being kind to your neighbors all sorts of social ethics which went with that and of course uh, you know the moral values of christianity which um, i think contrasted very strongly with what had become of hinduism at the time 
And this is part of a wider thing that interests me. Is it possible to unpick our response to someone like Churchill's views from the study of history? To what extent is that possible? You know, I I think we could certainly refine our views. And I think if people look at the actual evidence rather than the sort of media hype around these things, because I think a lot of what is attributed to Churchill is taken out of context. You know, there are various quotes which are taken and strung together as though he said them all at one time. Indians are a beastly people with a beastly religion and uh, remarks of that sort, which he made partly to shock and irritate his old childhood friend, Leopold Amory, who was Secretary of State for India, and rather humorous, pompous figure whom Churchill used to enjoy teasing. So he would make these remarks quite often not to be taken seriously, but Amory would write them down in his diary, uh, and later his diaries were published in the 1970s. So all this became, you know, these were Churchill's views, and these were, you know, occasional expletives he made, and not he, not just about India. He would have said very similar things about the French, the Germans, the Russians. You know, Churchill didn't like foreigners. Let's put it that way. So he he did have views that we find problematic, but sometimes, in your view, they're taken out of the context in which they were originally expressed. I think some of them were jocular, some of them were meant to shock, and most of them were not meant to be taken seriously. And against that, you know, people need to look at quotes from him where he came out with enormous praise for the Indian Army during World War II, for the contribution that Indian soldiers, both Hindu and Muslim, made, what fine fighting men they were. You know, so there are several quotes of that kind, him saying to... Um, an Indian member of his war cabinet, we must all be equal after the war. There should be no racial intolerance of any kind. We're all equal. So he said, you know, different things at different times. And I think one has to see them in context. People who defend the British Empire sometimes point to the fact that other empires that existed around the same time or before also enslaved people or had other lesser desirable attributes. But what would you say to the argument that actually that points to the problematic empire, uh, nature of empire more generally rather than absolving the British Empire of any, any wrongdoing? Well, I don't think the British Empire enslaved people. On the contrary, it abolished slavery throughout the British Empire. Slavery was widely practiced in India till 1835 when the British outlawed it. It still exists in some forms in India, in Africa, in China. Although the British Empire, through its navy, did an enormous amount to eradicate it across the world. Apart from the transatlantic slave trade, which ended, um, you know, in um, at the turn of the 18th, 19th century, there was the uh, huge sort of slave trade in the Arab and Middle Eastern and Turkish world, which carried on, and which the British did their best to stamp out. Uh, they stamped it out in Brazil in the 1830s by threatening to invade Brazil. So, um, 
I don't. I think it was an empire which very much emphasized liberation, evolution to democracy, representative government. The British Westminster model was very much held up as something that all the colonies should aspire to at different stages. So you had the white dominions leading the, the way, and then India was meant to follow, except the world war broke out. Your view is that the empire had no role in slavery itself? Uh, The British Empire had no role in in slavery. The British Empire very much arose when slavery was being abolished at the turn of the uh, 18th, 19th century. I mean, there was no British Empire before that. The American colonies had been lost. Clive founded the British Empire, uh, you know, you could argue in 1757, but it took a good two or three decades to become entrenched. From very early on, the emphasis was on getting rid of slavery, not encouraging it. And how about Britain's longer involvement in slavery? What's your take on on that? The longer involvement being uh, from the 16th century? Yes. Well, I think uh, that, as I said, the transatlantic slave trade was very much the sort of outcome of Western European powers trading off the coast of West Africa with West African kingdoms. Africa had very large slave markets, the result of conquest of one African kingdom by another. They sold slaves. The slave trade was very active within Africa. They then sold them to Western traders who sold them on to the plantations in the Caribbean and in, in America. So I I think that sort of nexus of commercialization of slavery very much was a product of European discovery of West Africa and vice versa. And today we only remember the European side of that. We don't remember how, how many African kingdoms thrived on it as well. But picking up on an idea we were discussing earlier, you're saying, if I'm right, that, that Britain did have an involvement in this, but other people did as well. But d- does that absolve Britain's role, do you think? No, but I think, um, you know, uh, Britain was the first to abolish it and police the abolition of it. Slavery has existed worldwide for millennia. It was considered perfectly normal in the 15th or 16th century for people to own slaves across the world. It wasn't just a European phenomenon. Uh, It was less a European phenomenon than it was a Middle Eastern or Chinese phenomenon or an Indian phenomenon. So it was a pretty global practice, uh, people owning slaves. And you see, the way that this evolved was that instead of massacring people when one kingdom conquered another, they decided it was more profitable and more humane to make them slaves. So the alternative was either being massacred or becoming slaves. I mean, that was the usual pattern for conquest, you know, in pre-modern times. So we should go on and talk a little bit more about your view of this sort of wider politicization or leaning in terms of institutions. Do you think that history reclaims views map onto that of the wider public in Britain? Well, I think the wider public is very divided on these issues. And so I think what we see very much, you know, and I see this quite a bit on social media, is that you have people who are very much on the left of these arguments 
um, think History Reclaimed is a sort of uh, upper-class plot by the Tories, just a few disgruntled historians trying to sort of turn the clock back. And then against that, you have, um, you know, quite a, a groundswell of people who think that the media is much too apologetic for Britain's past, that Britain is constantly having to apologise for its past, for the empire, instead of being proud of some of the legacies And uh, it's also very evident in the kind of feedback from former colonies. So if you take India, when Prime Minister Manmohan Singh came um, a decade ago, he gave a speech at at Oxford listing all the benefits India had had from the British Raj, as well as some of the disadvantages. So it was a very balanced kind of view. You obviously feel quite strongly about this. Do you think there's a risk that these kind of discussions about history and its use can become unhelpfully overstated or unhelpfully with too much emotion in them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, I dislike the way that it has become emotionalised, I mean, to take your phrase. I think history should be done in a much more detached way. I don't think... We we should allow our present political preferences uh, or likes and dislikes to affect our historical research. I think we should be open-minded about what we're looking for when we're doing our historical research. And I think if we find uh, things that contradict a particular theory or idea we have, we should be willing to state that and include that in our account. So I think history should certainly be detached from current affairs and current prejudices and preferences. But might it be argued that History Reclaimed is playing a role in this structure? Well, uh, only in in response, because, you know, as as the, the, the name suggests, that it, it was an attempt to reclaim history, is an attempt to reclaim history from the kind of mystification, politicisation that is going on. So... I think, yes, it is a fight back, if you like, against this trend. But I think, I don't think it's an attempt. I mean, I certainly haven't experienced any attempt to influence my views on in anything. And I think it's, it's very open to people with uh, different views to, to write articles for them and uh, put that on the website. So, so there is some variety in the views of people who, who are, are part of history reclaimed. Definitely, yeah. Talking on a personal level, are there any groups of people or sectors of society that you'd like to see more represented among History Reclaim's numbers? Do you think that it's skewed in terms of gender or ethnicity in any way, for instance? I, I think, you know, I, I'd like to see a bit more diversity in terms of women, in terms of people from minority backgrounds. At the moment, it is, does tend to be a bit white male dominated. So, I mean, there are women in it and um, they they play an active role. There are a a couple of minority people like myself, but uh, I think it could open up more more to, if you like, a a more diverse element. Do you have any sense as to why that might not have happened yet? I think it's partly historical, to use the familiar word, because I think it has grown out of the people who founded it. As I said, there was a founding group. I was a member of that. 
And I think there has been a lot of emphasis on expanding its reach in the white Commonwealth. So I think there are Australian members, New Zealand members, American members, South African members, but less attempt to recruit people from the uh, developing world, if you like. Finally, then, is it fair to characterise your concern as being a worry that history is being used to denigrate or unfairly criticise present-day Britain, or that history is being misused to the detriment of the profession itself, or both of those things? Let's take an example in terms of denigrating present-day Britain. Let's take Brexit. Now, I voted Remain, and I suppose I'd describe myself as a soft Remainer. However, I find it very odd that so many, uh, you know, there's this slur cast on Brexiteers, that they are living in an imperial past. They uh, are nostalgic for empire. Uh, I don't see any signs of this among the Brexiteers I know. They're very much looking forward. They're not looking back to what Britain was, uh, you know, a century ago. And so I think this is a way in which history is again misused to deal with something that is present day. Um, sorry, the second part of your question. Do, do, do you think that the misuse, as you would see it, of history is to the detriment of history as a profession or as a tool, I suppose, even? Yes, absolutely. Because I think, you know, if people aren't open-minded about the research they're doing and they go into an archive looking for evidence that's going to hang someone or glorify them, they're not um, performing the job of a historian. And historians, I think, are there to record things as they were, or at least as close as we can get to the way they were. And even if there are inconvenient facts that don't fit a particular theory we have, we should at least state them and let other people decide you know, whether they accept our view or, or a different view on it. Zuri, I suspect these discussions are going away no time soon, but thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Matt. All the best. That was Zaria Masani, historian, author and member of History Reclaimed. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 